Well, good morning, good morning. Welcome, guys, and uh, I mean, an extra hour of sleep was great. Uh, someone like me, I usually wake up just by myself every morning at 5.30, and so this morning I was up at 4.30. So uh, I think I've been awake for a long time is what it feels like at this point. But uh, I'm really glad that it's light in the morning again, which is really awesome. So, but welcome to Sedaris. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new with us or you're visiting with us, I want to extend an extra warm welcome to you. Um, I want to underscore uh, the membership class that Dave talked about. Um, I'm stepping on something here. I don't know what that is. Okay. I want to underscore the membership class that Dave talked about. Um, that is going to be a great uh, time where we can really get clear on uh, who we are and how we do family here at Sedaris Church. Um, it's one of the things that as we've uh, done Mission in the City for three, three and a half years now, we've really concluded that, you know what, if we uh, helped people get clear on who we are and what it means to be part of the family, um, our mission would be even more effective here in the city. We could uh, accomplish more things, we could do uh, more, uh, more alignment with our people, and then hopefully uh, see more and more people uh, come to know Jesus and have great conversations and consider Jesus as a result. So, um, if, if you would say that Sedaris Church is home for you, see, that's family language, that's familial language, this family class, this uh, family membership class is for you, and that's November 17th, it's Saturday, it's uh, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., like Dave said, so mark it on your calendar, we'd love to have you there, we will provide lunch, and it will be great lunch, so just wanted to underscore that. Well, um, if you brought your Bibles this morning, go ahead and take them out um, and turn over to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17 is where we're going to be. Um, if you didn't bring your Bible, we have some place down at the ends of the row, so pick one of those up or ask your neighbor to pass it down to you and turn over to Acts 17. Acts 17 is the fifth book of the New Testament, and the New Testament starts about three-quarters of the way through your Bible. It comes after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the four gospel accounts of Jesus, talk about Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, and the book of Acts is very logical that it comes next because it recounts the 30 years after Jesus's resurrection, okay? And so when you get to the book of Acts, join me in chapter 17, okay? All right, so if you're uh, new with us or just joining, we have been working through the book of Acts this year as a church. Uh, in the spring, we went through the first half of it, and then in the, in the summer, we took a break, and now we're working through the back half. And the back half of the book of Acts, um, Luke, that's the author of the book of Acts, he wrote it. Uh, Luke actually uh, follows the Apostle Paul on all of his journeys throughout the Roman Empire. The, uh, the Apostle Paul was a man uh, who originally persecuted the Jesus movement. He went from town to town arresting Christians. He would murder Christians. And as he was on his way to another town to do just that, Jesus showed up to him in power and blinded him. This would make you think twice about whether what you're doing is the right thing. <laughs> Paul changed his mind about Jesus at that point, and um, then Jesus healed him of the blindness, and Paul became a pastor. And for about 10 to 15 years, he was a pastor at a church in Antioch, uh, which is in modern-day Syria. So he was a pastor for 10 to 15 years at this church until one day during a worship service, God called him and this cat named Barney, Barnabas that is, out to go uh, bring the gospel to the Gentiles, that is, people who weren't primarily Jewish in the Roman Empire. And so the rest of Paul's life would be focused towards this end. He'd go on three missionary journeys, trouncing about modern-day Turkey, modern-day Greece, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to primarily Gentile, that is, non-Jewish audiences. 
And so he would go, he'd do this, he'd do this, and then he'd write a lot of letters to these churches, and uh, we have 13 of them that are preserved in the New Testament. 13 of the letters that Paul wrote to these churches that he started are in the New Testament, although we can be sure he wrote many more. Um, we're in, in the New Testament, we see that he started 14 churches, and we can be sure that he started many more than this. This was Paul's drive for the last 25, 30 years of his life until he was killed for it. All right, so that's what we've been doing on Sunday mornings, um, and so uh, in Acts 17, we are smack dab in the middle of Paul's um, second missionary journey. Last week, Dave uh, talked about the first half of that missionary journey, and um, we talked about how Paul and Philippi, with a- another one of his friends named Silas, they do some really peculiar things. And the thing is that when the gospel of Jesus gets a hold of his followers, they look peculiar. They do peculiar things. They are altogether um, differentiated from the culture from which they're in. And Dave did a great job at showing us that last week. And so if you uh, missed it, be sure to go back and give it a listen. Let me give you, so that was in uh, Paul's second missionary journey. Athens is in Paul's second missionary journey. So let me catch you up to speed. After leaving Philippi, um, which Paul would actually go back to in his third missionary journey, and then write a letter to like right before he died. Uh, After he left Philippi, he went to a place called Thessalonica. Him and Silas uh, proclaimed the gospel in the synagogue there first, like they do in every city. Uh, Some Jews believe. Then they decide to bring the gospel to the Greeks, that is the non-Jews, and many many Gentiles believe. Um, Rich, poor, men, women. In particular, Luke tells us that many women of high standing High-educated, highly powerful women believe the gospel that Paul preached and uh, the the resulting structure of the church that that Paul contended for. Then uh, all the Jews in Thessalonica get really upset. They get really jealous of this following that Paul has, Luke tells us, and they form a, a mob to try to kill him. So he flees. He runs to Berea. And in Berea, uh, they actually bring the gospel to the synagogue there. But this time, the Jews roundly accept the gospel of Jesus. Well, why is that? Well, Luke tells us that these Berean Christians were really, really focused on understanding the word of God. That is the Old Testament scriptures. And so when Paul came in and said, Jesus is the fulfillment of these scriptures, they knew him really well and they said, wow, that makes a lot of sense. And so we have a huge Jewish population come to know Jesus in Berea. But then also we have a huge Gentile population come to know Jesus as well. And, and in Berea, we have uh, many men and women Gentiles. I think in, in Berea, it says that many women uh, nobility uh, come to accept the gospel of Paul. And then the, the lynching mob in Thessalonica finds out that he's doing well in Berea, so they chase him in Berea, and then he runs to go to Athens. And up to this point in the second missionary journey, by all of uh, Luke's kind of, uh, his own editorial comments, he wants us to understand something. There are droves of people coming to faith in Jesus. Tons of them. And they're both rich and poor, men and women. Okay, so here we have an abundance of people, no matter what your background is, you're getting on board with this thing called the gospel of Jesus. And now we have come to Athens. Now we've come to Athens. And Athens is a very interesting place in the Roman Empire. It has... It's really the, the cultural and intellectual epicenter of the empire. 
For 500 years, it had been the intellectual center. Uh, 500 years ago, its democratically leader said this. He said, our whole city is an education for our citizens excel all men in versatility, resourcefulness, and brilliance. That was in the fifth century BC before Jesus showed up. And that was before the likes of Socrates was there, before the likes of Plato was there, before the likes of Aristotle showed up. Athens was the center of intellectual thought. Later, uh, Epicurus and Zeno showed up. They started Epicureanism and Stoicism. Uh, these would be the, the reigning philosophies of the day in Paul's time that were about 300 years old at this point. And the question goes like this. The, the, the reader of the book of Acts was written in Greek to Greeks. The Greek reader would have asked this. So the gospel, sure, it, it flourished among Jews who had a, a notion of God, it flourished among maybe some of these backwater towns where people were more superstitious, but surely if it comes into contact with an intellectual city, surely if it comes into contact with anything that's thoughtful and reasoned and principled, it's going to be roundly refuted and laughed at, right? Right? But that's not the case. What we're going to see is that the gospel even takes root in this intellectual center of Athens, that the gospel can advance even here. Um, my, my parents became Christians when I was a toddler, and so I had the, the fortune and the grace to grow up in a, a household uh, that believed in Jesus and went to church every Sunday. And like many of you, after I graduated high school, I went to uh, a state university, the University of Colorado, and uh, I encountered a very similar dynamic there. You see, when you get to the college campus, there's an underwriting assumption that goes like this. You've arrived at the place of enlightenment, and from wherever you've come from, i.e. your home, that was a place of inferior intellect. That reasoning about God and Jesus that took place there has no place here. And I, I studied physics in college, so I saw this very firsthand. I saw it very clearly. But you actually... I actually saw it the most clearly where Christianity or God was most shamed publicly and the prerequisites all of us had to take. Philosophy, sociology. In the soft sciences there, uh, God and Christianity was shamed. Why? Because this is a place of intellect and that stuff has no place here in the intellectual sphere. And, and I say this, and if you didn't go to a state school, or if you just went to a, a Christian, or if you went to a Christian school or university, or uh, perhaps you didn't go to college at all, this is still important for you because Seattle is a city of intellectuals. It's a city that's based on intellectualism. You can't find um, a list. I, I looked really, really hard this week. Uh, you can't find a list of most educated cities in America or most intelligent cities in America that Seattle is not on that list. We are a very uh, intelligent city. We have a, a very high degree of education and then even thoughtfulness and innovation that happens here. We're a very intellectual city. And so this is the question that not only Athens, the people of Athens would wrestle with, this is a question that we wrestle with, right? Can the gospel advance amidst this intellectualism? Can it do that? So um, if, if you're not a Christian, this is actually a really great week for you to be here because we're going to see the gospel as presented to uh, intellectuals. The, the same people of Athens are very similar 
to Seattleites in this way. I know sometimes we can assume that, that atheism is, is really big, and to be sure, there are a lot of atheists here in Seattle, including one of the baristas that I frequently see, but in reality, they're, they're, they're a small and outspoken minority. Um, a- any studies conducted on this put atheism at about 3%, that'd be 3% of the po- American population says that uh, people would say that there is not a God. But the, the most staggering thing is it's been at that level for four decades. But I think we operate under the assumption that as our intellectualism rises, and as we get smarter and smarter as a human race, that we will walk away from this silly, superstitious notion of God, but it's not happening. See? So, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that here in a little bit, Okay. So if you're not a Christian, this is great, um, but you're not alone because sometimes Christians can even get a little bit confused on this. Sometimes Christians can even um, misunderstand what the message of the gospel is because intellectualism has started to take over in their life a little bit. And when they do, a couple things are at stake. Uh, First, they they lose the satisfaction that they originally found in Jesus, in his word, and a relationship with him. And the second thing that that happens is they, they lose the ability to talk about Jesus with other people as a result. Okay, so so that's what's at stake here, and that's what Paul is going to help us with, okay? So, that's the flow that we're going to take it. First, we're going to unpack the message of Paul that he had for these intellectuals, and then we're going to investigate, or you could even say apply, how we might likewise take the gospel to an intellectual city. Those are going to be the two things that we do today, all right? So, um, let me set the scene for you so we can get to that message. Um, We're going to pick it up in verse 16, okay? Verse 16 is where we're going to be. Verse 16 says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. As he saw that the city was full of idols, his spirit was provoked. He was angry, you could even translate it. He was upset. He was frustrated. We'll impact why that was a little bit later. But what did he do as a result? Verse 17, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So what did he do? He found people who would likewise be upset by that reality. The Jews in the synagogue and the devout persons as well. He found people who were likewise upset set by that. Well, what happened when he did that? Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So what happens here is that because Paul is publicly talking about what's upsetting him in the city, because it goes against his understanding of the gospel of Jesus, is he's having conversations about people who would have been similarly disturbed by all the gods in the city. You see that? He's talking in public about it. These Epicureans, they were indifferent to the Roman pantheon of gods. They were like, I don't know if we can be certain about all these gods. They even questioned, I don't know if we can be certain if there is life after death at all. Does that sound like anybody you know? These Stoics uh, took a much even harder stance against the God, uh, the, the, the gods. They would say things like, these can't be gods. These stories that we read about these gods, they act far too irrationally to be these supreme beings. In fact, they're more akin to children. <laughs> and that's actually true as you read the, the stories of these Roman pantheon of gods. 
And so we have something very interesting happening here that, that I want to take a step forward and apply this now, and we'll come back to it later. When the people of God talk publicly about the things that are frustrating with them, the things that unsettle them about their city, it provides an opportunity for them to engage with people who have similar beefs, is how I would put it. The application here is, are you talking with other Christians in the city about how this is the, one of the worst cities in the country to date in? Are you talking about how this is the worst, one of the worst cities in the, in the countries to have friendships with people? Are you talking about how it's the, one of the worst cities to, to drive a car in, to have any meaningful dialogue in? Because you know what? There's a lot of people who don't believe in God, who don't believe in Jesus, that have similar beefs. And when those strangers, those acquaintances, those friends step into that conversation, you have an opportunity to speak to how the gospel might meet those felt needs. You see that? That's what's happening here in Athens. Paul is talking to people who would agree with him about these, all these idols, and then he's finding other people who don't believe in God or Jesus that are likewise uh, chafed and unsettled by it. Okay? So that, that's just something that we can uh, just start to apply this right away. Okay? Talk publicly with other Christians. Go out to lunch afterwards. Talk about the sermon. Talk about our city. And, and what it needs, okay? Well, um, what happened then? Well, I, I want to I say something, too. When you do that, it's going to be, you, you will expe- experience pushback. You definitely will. Paul experiences it right here. They call him a babbler. They call him a babbler. That's actually a Greek insult. It comes from a, a Greek word that means a seed picker, a seed picker. It came to denote a person who would uh, just pick certain ideas out of different systems and then uh, pass them off and say them as if they were the most profound things that were ever said without actually understanding the whole from which they came. Okay, so they're calling Paul kind of this intellectual inferior guy. They're calling him a seed picker. And if you talk about God in public, if you talk about Jesus in public, you likewise will be insulted. And we'll come back to that here in a second here, okay? All right, so, so let's read here um, what, what, what this leads to, because that's what happens in verse 19. What does this lead to, these conversations? They actually invite him to present his viewpoint in full. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to, into the Areopagus. Uh, that, through a series of translations, has come to be known as Mars Hill. Um, Mars Hill. They, they took him to Mars Hill, saying... May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Luke's having a little bit of fun here. Uh, He's showing how these guys are being a little bit hypocritical. They're calling Paul the seed picker, when in reality, they seed picked (laughs) 24-7. This is what they did all day, every day, is they just loved hearing new ideas so that they could talk about them, okay? And they invite him to this Mars Hill, which was a court held on top of a hill. This is where uh, the, the big, big intellectuals would come into town and have big conversations, or the ones that lived there would have big conversations without a, blou- uh, w- without a doubt, um, Socrates, Plato, 
Aristotle, Epicurus, Zeno, all of these people would have spoken in this court as well. Okay, so they invite him to the center of intellectualism. They invite him to the big stage on Mars Hill, okay? Now, <clears throat> so these are the events that um, brought Paul to the point of presenting the gospel to a bunch of intellectuals. It's, it's pretty awesome. The gospel comes into an intellectual city. It doesn't get dismissed right away, but it gains an audience. It gains the most intellectual audience that it can, okay? These Epicureans and these Stoics, these are the brainiacs of the city. These are the brainiacs of the entire empire at this point. They likewise uh, rejected the superstition of the Roman gods. You could say that their philosophies primarily wrestled with notions surrounding agnosticism even. How can we be sure there is a God? If there is a God, what would it look like for us to serve him? Can this God be known at all? How can we be sure? They tirelessly wrestled with these questions, as we can see from all of their, their, uh, their scripts and their books and their scrolls that they, that they wrote that have been recovered. These are the questions that intellectuals ask. Can we be sure there's a God? If so, what does it look like to serve him? How can he even be known if there is one? These are questions that our city wrestles with. All right, and Paul starts a conversation with them. Look at it in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. That's a definition of what agnosticism is. Right there. Agnosticism really struggles with, is there a God and can it be known? And it, it eventually shrugs its shoulders and says, maybe. Harder ones would say, maybe and we cannot know. Okay? This is the altar of agnosticism. Why try to look for him at all if we can't find him? And here's what we need to take away. Even though they're doubtful and indifferent to the Roman pantheon of gods, they're still reaching out and trying to serve some notion of a god. Some notion of a god. All of their intellectual debating and reasoning is trying to figure out how might we serve a god. And what I want us to notice is that Vaguely acknowledging the possibility of a God or a tip of the hat to theism is how intellectual cities operate. It's how they always have. That, that they vaguely acknowledge the possibility of a God. Now, it's common to assume that we're full of atheists like we talked earlier, but every 97% of the population is entertaining some notion of the form that there is a God I bet, uh, ask any Uber driver who likes to talk to people about Jesus, Ben Thompson, you know who you are, he will tell you that he doesn't come across a bunch of atheists in this city. I'm sure of it. In fact, the typical worldview of how God and life work together go like this. Let's put that slide up there, slide number one. It goes like this. This is generally true. This isn't absolutely true down to the T for each and every person, okay? But it goes like this. A God exists and watches over human life on earth. This isn't me, this is a guy named Ray Ortland. He's a, a pastor and theologian. A God exists and watches over human life on earth. God's wa God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. 
God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he's needed to solve a problem. Everybody prays when it hits the fan. Good people go to heaven when they die. Okay, this is generally what most people believe about God and life and how it works. And you could even see a, a little bit of the afterlife in there. Even Christians can live like this, even though it's not a particularly Christian worldview, okay? Now, let's look at what Paul has to say then to these spiritual searchers, okay? Paul's first point here helps us understand him. It really does, and it's right here in verses 24 and 25. All right. He says, the God, he says, I'll finish up uh, verse 23 here. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now it becomes clear why when he arrived in Athens, his spirit is so provoked, he's so frustrated, he's angry, he's unsettled, his onions are boiling that's an inside joke, sorry. This is a made-up phrase that we use here at Sedaris. Onions boiling means that you're angsty, okay? You need to know that if you're going to be part of this family. Okay. (laughs) He's provoked because of this. He says that God doesn't live in the things that you've made. Athens was full of temples that took several, several decades to build. He says God isn't served... By human hands, the Athenians continually offered food and fruit and animals as sacrifices to these gods to serve them so that they could appease these gods in ways. You could bet that even the Epicureans and Stoics in their weakest points were like, well, maybe if it'll appease them, we'll participate as well. But what Paul says is you've got it backwards. You've got it backwards, and it's enslaving you. This is actually why he's frustrated. Look at verse 25. It's in the middle there. He says, since he himself, since God himself, that's emphatic, gives to all, including everybody, all mankind, life and breath and everything. He says, you've got it backwards. You think that you can serve God? God serves humans. This is a radical statement. God, we don't serve God. God serves humans. You you think that your purpose is to serve a God? You think that your purpose is to be obedient to a God? No, Paul says, God serves humanities. God cannot be served, but he loves to serve his creatures. This is why he's so upset because they fundamentally misunderstood what this unknown God that they're trying to worship, how he works. How can Paul be so certain of this? How? It's because he lived his life the other way around himself for the majority of it. He grew up as a highly educated intellectual Pharisee, which means that he embraced the notion that that it would be his sacrifice, it would be his service that would eventually rot the acceptance from God that he eventually would get in life. You see this? Paul recognized that his intelligent Judaism 
conceived of God in the same way that these Athenians conceived of God, namely that he had to serve him in order to experience reciprocal acceptance from God. And he says, that's backwards. That's backwards. And we conceive of God like this as modern-day intellectuals as well. But it's not the gospel of Jesus. You see, the gospel or the good news of Jesus is actually just indifferent news or bad news to some people. And it's bad, to you, it's bad news to you if you feel strong, if you feel self-sufficient, if you feel morally upright, if you feel like you're the ethical exemplar of this world, which is a ton of people, not just Christians in this city. The gospel's gonna be bad news to you if you think you're upright. It's bad news for anybody who has the, operates from the general notion of, towards God of I'm showing you that I'm adequate. I'll negotiate you for a place in eternity. Hold up, Paul says. You're never going to get right with God by trying to serve him or trying to be good. It doesn't work that way. But for many, the gospel is truly, truly good news. And it, do you know who it's good news to? It's good news to you if you feel weak, if you feel helpless, if you feel empty, if you feel inadequate, if you feel unworthy. It's then that when the gospel comes to you that God is the giver and he is not the receiver that you can receive it as good news. It's when you understand it like that that he can give to you and he can serve you and he gets the glory, but you get the blessing. That's how the gospel of Jesus works. But that's not how intellectuals are wired. Intellectuals, we get it backwards. They conceive of being accepted by God by serving him. And this is anybody, this is not just non-Christians. This is not just Christians, it's also non-Christians. It's like spending your whole life thinking there's a big running race at the end and, and running and doing squats and jumping on boxes. I think box, that, that's a leg exercise. There's lots of legs. It's like spending your whole life doing all of these leg exercises only to find out that at the end, the final competition is hang gliding. <laughs> and this is why Jesus said this to his disciples when he was here on earth. It's in Mark chapter 10. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. How? To give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. This is the heart of the Christian message. Why did God come to us? Because he needed a back rub? Because he needed someone to feed him? Because he needed someone to clothe him? Because he needed someone to pay him lip service? No. He didn't need anybody to sacrifice for him. He came to serve us, not to be served by us. You see, in this way, the gospel is not a help-wanted sign. It's a help-available sign. This is what the gospel is. God is your servant. Does that feel scandalous? You might be an intellectual. God is your servant. 
The greatest need you have is not a better job or for God to fix your marriage. The greatest need you have is not your health. It's not a longer vacation. It's not a significant other. The greatest need we have right now is for someone to die for us and pay the ransom to take our place on the cross. And I think your conscience would bear witness to this. I know mine does. I don't need the Bible. I don't need God to tell me that there's something wrong with me, that there's something horribly wrong. I've got my conscience, folks. And you do too. Doesn't your conscience let us let you know that something is horribly wrong? That we're in trouble with this Almighty? Isn't that what's forcing us to, to conceive of this serving of this huge, powerful being? But the gospel says that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. So we're, we're in no position to serve. We're dependent upon his service. But there are many who would conceive of God the other way around. Like an ox pulling a cart, that's how we feel. You put on the yoke of serving God and wh whatever that looks like for you and you pull and you pull and you pull and you look up and you look around and you see that you're getting further than some people are so you feel a little bit better than they and you keep on pulling and pulling thinking that you can show yourself adequate as being able to enter into eternal life someday but all the while you know that you're not doing it. <laughs> you're not gonna make it. It's not quite enough. That way of life is misery. I know because I lived it for years. It's terrible. This is what intellectuals do to themselves. The gospel will only be good news to you, though, if you say you can't pull the cart. You can't serve God to change your separation from him. You need his help to, to fix that that you need the Jesus ox to be hooked to that cart so he, can pull it, so he can pull it while you sit and watch. So this is why Jesus says so many things. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Well, well, well Ryan, what about service? Don't we serve as Christians? Well, yeah, we serve, but not, at, not until we get this. Next week, we'll preach that sermon and ask for a bunch of children's volunteers. <laughs> Next week, we'll preach that sermon, okay? But if we don't get this, our service is rooted in the, the wrong thing. It's rooted in trying to get acceptance from God rather than as a joyful response to how Jesus has pulled that cart for us. This is legalism. This is beautiful freedom. You see that? All right, well, we can talk about this forever, but let's keep on going through Paul's argument here, okay? Um, yeah, that's the gospel of Jesus right there in, in a nutshell. Okay, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, that's time, and boundaries, that's nations, uh, of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He's quoting their literature back to them. Here Paul further rounds out God. He said God created. That, that's kind of what uh, verse 26, the assumption that it's built on. God created everything. Epicureans and Stoics could get on board with that as an intellectual city, right? Intellectual cities, we have a nod of the hat towards um, 
theism, we'll say, sure, if there's a God, he created, absolutely, you know? Then he also says that God is in control. Well, hold up, that can make us a little more uncomfortable. But if we just said that God had the power to create everything, surely he has the power to step in and alter it at some times or step in and play with it a little bit. Play with it is a terrible analogy. I take that back. But step in and meaningfully direct where he wants it to go. My wife is a painter. My wife's a painter, and she paints, and we put her paintings up in our house, and every now and then she'll revisit a painting, which means that she'll get her paintbrush and her oils and her pastels or whatever media it is, and she'll go up and she'll alter some parts of it. It's very reasonable to expect that she has the power to do that because she created the whole thing to begin with. So in this way, it actually makes a lot of sense that if we're saying that God created, he also has the power to control, okay? But then there's a third thing that Paul is saying here that intellectual cities have a hard time getting on board with, and that's that God is close. God served, in verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. God is close. Now the intellectual kind of bristles at that and says, whoa, 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 hold up. God is close? God is far. Look at all of the pain. Look at all of the suffering. Look at all the death that we've seen. If this all-powerful, serving, loving God is true, he's not around. Surely he can't be around. And Paul actually closes his argument by answering that a little bit. And to that objection, he says this. Yeah, you're kind of (laughs) right. That's what he kind of says. He says, yeah, you know what? You're kind of right. Let's read the rest of his argument here. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In essence, um, the painting that Christie paints cannot turn back around and create Christie. That's what Paul's saying. Very logical. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So this is Paul's come to Jesus plea. He says God is close, and one day he's going to be even closer. He's going to come and fix all of the suffering and the death and the pain. And you know what that entails? You know what our desire for that justice entails? It requires a judge. It requires a judge. It requires judging people who cause suffering and pain and death and heartbreak and lying and cheating and stealing and hatred and self-absorption and greed and lust do I need to keep going? It requires someone to confront all of us. And what Paul says is that he's hoping that their consciences are pricked. He's hoping that they're going to see that they're going to end up on the wrong end of this justice and realize they're all in deep need of God. They can look at the gospel and say, yeah, I need that. I am weak. I am helpless. I am wounded. I am vulnerable. I am unworthy. Okay? God is close, but not too close. There's still time to respond to him. So this is the gospel, the good news that Jesus came 
that, that, that Jesus came with, a, a way to survive his justice, his death on the cross. And, and his death on the cross represents here, and I want to talk about this because we are an intellectual city, his death on the cross here represents and provides us with some empirical, factual, historical data Say that again, empirical, factual, historical data that intellectuals must wrestle with. To not wrestle with this data is to forfeit intellectual honesty when talking about God. To not wrestle with this data is to forfeit that. Like, I, I, my undergrad is in physics. If you were working in any area of physics and you decided just not to deal with significant findings of that field, you would be laughed out of the institution, the, the higher education institution. There are some empirical facts that anybody who wants to wrestle with the existence of God has to deal with. There's primarily three of them that go like this. First, we have to wrestle with the empirical data of the life of Jesus. Several ill-motivated historians have attempted to nullify that Jesus existed as a person over the century, and they have been roundly refuted by even the most secular of historians, that is, people who don't have faith in Jesus. A, a man named Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, and the events of his life included the stirring up a movement of sorts. There's no getting around that. Okay, uh, the second empirical data that we have to wrestle with is the death of Jesus. We have an abundance of eyewitness accounts and affirmations of Jesus' death on the cross, resulting in an almost immediate and widespread movement. And do you know what we don't have? A single contemporary denial of his death on the cross. If a movement the size of the Jesus movement was propagated based on a public event that did not happen, we would have many, many, many people calling bull honky on that. But as it is, we don't have a single source of such a call out. And finally, we, we have the data, empirical, factual point of the resurrection. This is the data point that Paul ends his, his argument on, his presentation on. History tells us that many, many Messiah figures took place around the time of Jesus. Many of them, at least half a dozen. And what that would look like is a Jewish a man would rise up with lots of public teaching. He would either self-proclaim himself as a Messiah or his followers would. The Roman Empire would catch a whiff of it and they'd kill him. And the movement would scatter and go to nothing. And the Jesus movement follows the same pattern of events. We have a man, who, a Jewish man, who rises up with great teaching. His followers proclaim that he is the Messiah. The Roman Empire gets involved and kills him. And then his followers scatter until they don't. Until three days later, they come back together and they conclude that he has risen from the dead. Now, this is crazy. Jewish theology said that if someone was publicly executed, that was surely a sign that God had removed his favor from that person. But they conclude the opposite. Jewish theology has resurrection built into it, but not this notion of just a single person being risen from the dead. Only one of a corporate event at the end of time. Here we have two things going directly against their theology that they're saying have to be true can only be true if they came into contact with a risen Jesus, okay? 
So those are our, our three empirical data points that we have to wrestle with if we're going to be intellectually honest about this conversation of if there's a God or not. If we're going to be intellectuals, let's be intellectuals and wrestle with it, okay? All right, so that's Paul's message. That's his message on, on Mars Hill. Very famous message, probably one of the most famous sermons ever given to, to non-believers. How did people respond? Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite. That would be, uh, they're on the Areopagus, so that would be someone who was probably an official in this court. And a woman named Demarius and others with him. Again, intellectual men and intellectual women join the gospel movement. That's what we see happen in Athens, just like in Berea, just like in Thessalonica, just like in Philippi, everywhere. Intellectual men and women are coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So, so that's Paul's message. The gospel means that God serves us, not the other way around. The gospel is not a help-wanted sign. It's a help-available sign. God created, is in control, He's close, and there's time to return to him before Judge Jesus comes. That's not a TV show. All right, so how do we actually bring this message to an intellectual audience of the city of Seattle, okay? The first one we've already talked about a little bit here. Have public conversations about the gospel. There's five of these, okay? There's five of them. The first one, have public conversations about the gospel in the city with your Christian friends. Go on out there and do that. Each and every week in my fellowship group, we have that conversation, but we have it in private. Super huge kudos to the fellowship group that pairs up and goes out into different bars and restaurants and parks to unpack the sermon. What if we did that? What if we did that? I mean, right now, I mean, I mean that conversation probably wouldn't be quite as full because you wouldn't have all 10 to 15 people to be able to provide insight on it, but right now we're cheating our city of that conversation by holding them in our living rooms each and every week. This is one of the reasons why we ask people to go out to lunch after church. Talk to your friends about, your Christian friends, about what's going on in the city, about the gospel of Jesus, okay? That's the first one. Two, uh, the second one goes like this. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is not intellectual suicide. The gospel of Jesus is not intellectually inferior to any other philosophical structure out there. Some of the, the most brilliant minds, most of the most brilliant minds of the past 2,000 years in Western culture have been Christians, okay? Do not be ashamed. Now, now, you will be made fun of. Paul is insulted on the front end, and he is laughed at and, and mocked on the back end. And this is why Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, one person who was afraid was Peter. Peter was afraid of being insulted. He was afraid of persecution. 
And so this, this phrase meant a lot to Peter. So much so that he repeated it almost verbatim. Well, not almost verbatim, but very similarly to his followers. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may, overjoy, may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. What a promise. Okay? So be encouraged. Be encouraged. Okay? The second thing I want to say uh, to not be ashamed is look at all these. Ah, these are books. These are books. Some people read these still, but these are books. Don't be ashamed. These are a ton of brilliant men and women that have put in so much work to answer all of the questions that people have about Christianity and all of the refutations that they've come up with. Men and women have done this. These are like the people that, you know, they go to college and they decide that they love it there. They get more and more degrees and then they just decide to stay there and just write and teach. There are so many men and women, look at this, uh, to answer, to everyone an answer. That's probably pretty good. I haven't read it. Uh, Douglas Grotheis, uh, Philosophy in Seven Sentences. I haven't read that either. How Not to Be Secular. I've read like three pages of that. Death in the City. I read a lot of that. That's good. A Christian Manifesto, uh, Francis Schaeffer, Foolishness to the Greeks, Leslie Newbegin, um, Thales to Dewey, this is all philosophy. It's really, really good, a Christian understanding of it. Um, but you don't have to read these books. <laughs> but don't be ashamed, many have. Christianity is still intellectually robust in light of all the philosophy that's been written on it, okay? Don't be ashamed, that's point two, okay? Uh, point number three is be humble. Be humble. Um, if someone asks you a question that you don't know, use those, the most beautiful, it's a, it's a great opportunity. You'll get the opportunity to say the most beautiful 10 words ever, which go like this, I don't know, those are the first three, I don't know, but I can find out for you. Boom! What an opportunity, because you know what's happened there is you have encountered a real question, and all of a sudden you've created an excuse to get together and have another big conversation about Jesus. How awesome is that? I don't know, but I can find out for you. It, it, that, I mean, be humble. Admit that you don't know. It's an opportunity for further conversation, okay? Um, number four, identify the areas in our culture where big conversations are happening and what those conversations are about. Um, my fellowship group was based on this for a while. Uh, where is the Mars Hill of our modern day culture? TED Talks. It's where intellectuals come together to discuss big ideas to solve the big problems of our society, of our world. TED Talks. Where are people unpacking those? Hang out at that water cooler. There's a lot of water coolers that are pretty much garbage. You can waste a lot of time at terrible water coolers. Talking about The Bachelor. No, I'm just kidding. It's fine. There are some pretty infatuating, intellectually infatuating water coolers to be a part of. Where are those happening? Get close to them. It's an opportunity to talk about problems, and perhaps even you'll find an opportunity to talk about Jesus. Okay? Five. The last one is don't psych yourself out. This is, we can get really psyched out. I probably should have led with this one. But don't psych yourself out. Okay? 
uh, part A, these events here in, in, in Mars Hill in Acts 17 where Paul gains a, um, an audience with the biggest philosophical minds of his day, that's a description of events. That's not a prescription of what all Christians should do every time and place. You're probably not called to go to the big stage and debate leading philosophical thinkers that, that don't believe in Jesus. Okay, you're probably not called to do that. Now, I mean, some of you might be, and you know that you might be if you love to read books. <laughs> That's usually the tip-off. You love to think. You love to think logically. You love to argue. Uh, but most people are not called to do this. Now, you can watch um, videos or listen to debates, or people have done this, um, but it's not for everybody, okay? Uh, the Part B of don't psych yourself out is Paul didn't do much Look what he did. He didn't do much. He just said, God serves humans, not the other way around. He created. He's in control. He's close. There's time to come back to him. We know that because Jesus was raised from the dead. And then he got out. And some people believed him. Okay? It's not so much having the perfect argument or the perfect phrases to say. It's all about your heart of love for your creator that is believing in this message so concretely and so sweetly that you want to tell other people that, that you're provoked within yourself when you see a city that's wrestling for how to be moral, for how to be ethical, for how to be upright. And you just want to help them, okay? That's when things happen that are effective, okay? So, Christians don't leave their mind at the door. They don't psych themselves out. They're okay saying that they don't know, and they love Jesus. I think all of us can do that in this city, all right? All right, let's pray. Father, um, we thank you for your word of God. Lord, we, we thank you for your word and how it brings us life, how it's all meant to, to encourage us, to take steps towards you that, that are meaningful, that for those of us who might be um, groping about in the dark, trying to find some sort of meaning, some sort of revelation of, of who a God might be, you have revealed yourself in Scripture, Lord. And I pray that my friends here who are looking for, for you might be able to look in your word and listen to your word. I pray that you would soften their hearts to hear it, Father. Lord, I pray that anything that we... Um, Anything and everything that we do here as a church is, is as consumable for anybody who doesn't know God as someone who does know God, God. And uh, that's how your gospel works, and so we praise you for that beauty. Um, I pray that as we uh, go out into our city that we have great conversations with one another about you, about your gospel, and about our city, that we might come into contact and have great conversation great conversations with others. So I thank you for my friends here. I ask that you would bless them in this time of worship and that you would uh, encourage us this week to take steps of love and activity towards you. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.